And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. <clears throat> Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Well, today is September the 4th. <clears throat> if you've been sleeping all day because it is Labor Day and a holiday, you can roll back over and go back to sleep. As I say, it is Labor Day. It's 247th day of the year. 118 days remain to the year's over with. And let's see what we've got in the way of holidays and national days for today. Uh, I said it was Labor Day, National Wildlife Day, National Eat an Extra Dessert Day, Mouth Guard Day, National Macadamia Nut Day, Wangaree Dance Day, West Indian Day Parade. Well, not a lot of holidays observances on this particular date. In uh, 476 A.D., Romulus Augustulus is deposed when Oda Acer proclaims himself king of Italy, ending the Western Roman Empire. 626, Li Ximin, posthumously known as Emperor Tatzong of Tang assumes the throne over uh, the Tang Dynasty in China. 929, Battle of Linzen. Slavic forces, the Radar and the Obotrites, are defeated by a Saxon army near the fortified stronghold of Linzen in Brandenburg. 1260, the Sienese Ghibellines. Supported by the forces of Manfred, King of Sicily, defeat the Florentine Guelps at uh, Monteperti. 1282, Peter III of Aragon becomes King of Sicily. 1479, the Treaty of Alcocolis is signed by the Catholic monarchs Castile and Aragon on one side, and Fonzo V and his son, Prince John of Portugal. 1607, Flight of the Earls takes place in Ireland. It's uh, This is when Hugh O'Neill, the second Earl of Tyrone, and Rory O'Donnell, the first Earl of Tarconnell, and about 90 followers left Ulster and Ireland for mainland Europe. Their permanent exile was a watershed event in Irish history, symbolizing the end of the old Gaelic order. 1607. Uh, I'm sorry, 1666, in London, England, the most destructive damage from the Great Fire occurs on this date. 1774, New Caledonia is first sighted by Europeans during the second voyage of Captain James Cook. 1781, Los Angeles is founded as El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora de Reina de Los Angeles, the village of Our Lady, the Queen of the Angels, by 44 Spanish settlers. They did have long names in those days. 1797, the coup of 18 Fructidor in France. For those who know what that is, it was a seizure of power in France by members of the Directory, the government of the French First Republic, with support from the French military. This coup was provoked by the results of elections held months earlier, which had given the majority of seats to the country's uh, core legislative, the legislative body, the royalist candidates threatening the restoration of the monarchy and a return to the ancient regime. 
Three of the five ministers of the directory, Paul Barras, Juan Francois Robel, and Louis Marie de la Rivera, supported the foreign minister, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord, staged the coup d'etat, which annulled many of the previous election's results and ousted the monarchies from the legislature. 1800, the French garrison of Valletta surrenders to British troops who had been called at the invitation of the Maltese. Island of Malta, Gozo, become the Malta Protectorate. 1812, during the War of 1812, siege of Fort Harrison begins when the fort set on fire. 1827, the Great Fire of Turku almost completely destroys Finland's former capital city. Now, 1839, Battle of Kowloon, British vessels opened fire on Chinese war junks, enforcing a food sales embargo on the British community in China in the first armed conflict of the First Opium War. 1862, on this date, American Civil War, the Maryland Campaign. General Robert E. Lee takes the Army Northern Virginia and the war into the North. 1867, Sheffield Wednesday Football Club are founded at the Odelphi Hotel in Sheffield, becoming one of the first football clubs in the world. 1870, Emperor Napoleon III of France is deposed and the Third Republic is declared. 1882, the Pearl Street Station in New York City becomes the first power plant to supply electricity to paying customers. 1886, but it's become a big business since then, folks. 1886, American Indian Wars. After almost 30 years of fighting, Apache leader Geronimo and his remaining warriors surrendered to General Nelson Miles in Arizona. He finished out his years posing for picture postcards sitting in a Model T at uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, I think it was. 1888, and his skull was stolen and taken to the... Um, Skull and Bones uh, headquarters. 1888, George Eastman registers a trademark Kodak and gets a patent for his camera that uses roll film. 1912, Albanian rebels succeed in a revolt when the Ottoman Empire agrees to fulfill their demands. 1919, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who founded the Republic of Turkey, gets a, gathers a Congress of Sivas to make decisions as to the future of Anatolia and Trace. In 1923, maiden flight of the first U.S. airship, the USS Shenandoah. 1934, Evelyn Wall's novel, A Handful of Dust, is first published in full on this date. 1936, Spanish Civil War. Largo Caballero forms a war cabinet to direct the Republican war effort. 1939, World War II, William J. Murphy commands the first Royal Air Force attack on Germany. 1941, World War II, a German submarine makes the first attack of the war against a U.S. warship, the USS Greer. 19, and for those that are wondering, it was a Witch-class destroyer named for Rear Admiral James A. Greer. What became known as the Greer Incident became the first U.S. Navy ship to fire on a German ship three months before the U.S. officially entered the war. Incident led President Roosevelt to issue what became known as his shoot on sight order. Pelot could confirm the shoot on sight order September 11, 1941, effectively declaring naval war against Germany and Italy in the Battle of the Atlantic. Yeah, that will, that will teach them to annoy 
powers that be. 1944, World War II, the British 11th Armored Division liberates the Belgian city of Antwerp. Also in 44, World War II, Finland exits from the war with the Soviet Union. 1948, Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands abdicates for health reasons. Afraid somebody's going to shoot her. 1949, the Peekskill riots erupt after a Paul Roberson concert in Peekskill, New York. 1950, Darlington Raceway is the site of the inaugural Southern 500, the first 500-mile NASCAR race. 1951, the first live transcontinental television broadcast takes place in San Francisco from the Japanese Peace Treaty Conference. 1957, American Civil Rights Movement, Little Rock Crisis. The governor of Arkansas calls out the National Guard to prevent African-American students from rolling in Little Rock Central High School, resulting in the lawsuit Cooper v. Aaron the uh, following year. 1963, Swiss Air Flight 306 crashes near Duranosk, Switzerland, killing all 80 people on board. 1964, Scotland's Firth Road Bridge near Edinburgh officially opens. 1967, Vietnam War, Operation Swift begins when U.S. Marines engage in North Vietnamese in battle in the Quezon Valley. 1970, Salvador Allende is elected president of Chile. 1971, Alaska Airlines Flight uh, 1866 crashes near Juneau, Alaska, killing all 111 people on board. 1972, Mark Spitz becomes the first competitor to win seven medals in a single Olympic game. Also in 72, The Price is Right premieres on CBS. It's currently the longest-running game show on American TV. Bob Barker just died the other day, for those that are following The Price is Right. 1975, the Sinai Interim Agreement relating to the Arab-Israeli conflict is signed. 1977, the Golden Dragon Massacre takes place in San Francisco. For those that are not familiar with the Golden Dragon Massacre, it was a gang-related shooting attack that took place on September 4th inside the Golden Dragon Restaurant at 822 Washington Street in Chinatown. Five perpetrators, members of the Joe Boys, a Chinese youth gang, were attempting to kill leaders of the Hua Ching, a rival Chinatown gang. The attack left five people dead and 11 injured, none of whom were gang members. Seven perpetrators were later convicted and sentenced in connection with the murders. This massacre led to the establishment of the San Francisco Police Department's Asian Gang Task Force, credited with ending gang-related violence in Chinatown by 1983. The restaurant where it took place closed in 2006, so if you want to go relive uh, the massacre, sorry about that, Chief. 1985, discovery of Buckminster Fulderain, the first fullerene molecule of carbon took place on this date. 1989 in Leipzig, East Germany, the first of weekly demonstrations for the legislation of opposition groups and democratic reforms takes place on this date. 1998, Google's founded by Larry Page and Sergey Brin, two students at Stanford University. 2001, Tokyo Disney Sea opens to the public as part of Tokyo's Disney Resort and Iriasu uh, Chiba in Japan. 2002, the Oakland Athletics won their 20th consecutive game in American League record. This date, 2007, three terrorists suspected to be part of a 
Al-Qaeda are arrested in Germany after allegedly planning attacks on both the Frankfurt International Airport and U.S. military installations. 2010, a 7.1 magnitude earthquake strikes the South Island of New Zealand, causing widespread damage and several power outages. 2020, Pope Benedict XVI becomes the longest-lived Pope, 93 years, 4 months, 18 days, surpassing Pope Leo XIII, who died in 1903. And in 2022, 10 people are killed and 15 are injured in a stabbing spree in 13 locations on the James Smith Cree Nation in Weldon, Saskatchewan. Well, we've got uh, a lot of um, things to talk about. We've been discussing... um, I guess you could call them unexpected deaths in uh, Hollywood. You know, when the... Interesting... um, thing we were talking about... um, Sharon Tate. Who um, had recurring roles on the Beverly Hillbillies and was married to Roman Pulaski. Yeah, but she became big news. Uh, in fact, the news was on radio and TV across Los Angeles, and in fact, most of the country. And with every grisly detail that came out, shock and fear spread as well, starting in the living rooms of the rich and famous and trickled down to the ordinarily family rooms in the rest of the city. Five people were found murdered, Butchered, as a matter of fact, in a gated estate in Benedict Canyon. That's an estate surrounded by high walls and a sophisticated security system. Well, if those folks aren't safe in their own home, then the question became, who was? And they weren't merely murdered. They were mutilated, stabbed and shot over and over and over again, and their blood used to write cryptic messages all over the house. Um... One of the victims that got the most publicity, of course, was the gorgeous Sharon Tate, an actress who just made a big splash in how they publicized film Belly of the Dolls. And she was the wife of uh, Polish director Roman Polanski, and she was eight months pregnant. So immediately everybody began to ask why. Well, her name was actually Sharon Marie Tate, born in Dallas, Texas in 1943. Doris and Paul Tate. Father was an army intelligence and spent most of his time away. So, while the cat's away, I guess is the expression, <coughs> Doris got bored one day and put her six-month-old daughter in a Miss Tiny Tots of Dallas contest. That was years before the TV show Toddlers and Tierras, and of course Sharon won. And as the years passed, Sharon realized the power she had uh, and the attention her beauty commanded and began modeling. Even appeared on the covers of Stars and Stripes magazine in a bathing suit and traveling a missile. Now, her father, who was a colonel by this time, wasn't pleased, but he wasn't home all that much, so Sharon carried on with her activities without any long, boring speeches on 
the moral consequences of her activities. Well, eventually, the, the colonel moved his growing family. Two more daughters had been born. Italy in 1959, where Sharon blew the boys away at Vincenza American High School in Verona. As an interesting side note, that's where Romeo and Juliet are buried. She was a cheerleader with endless hours from, and endless offers from love-struck admirers looking to carry her books. and She was the homecoming queen, a position of school created just for her. She was the girl that most of the other girls wanted to hate, but with her perfect skin and knockout sensual looks, and because she was nice, they ended up being her best friend and basking her in her aura instead. She literally enchanted everybody everywhere she went. Well, in the early 60s, American movies began using exotic European locales as backdrops for period pieces. She snuck into a crowd scene in the movie Barabbas and got hired as an extra on Hemingway's Adventures of a Young Man. One of the co-stars in that film, Richard Bamer, was so smitten he took her out a few times and gave her the thrill of her life. Also gave her his agent's business card. But once she got home to California, she didn't waste any time dialing up Hal Gefsky, the agent, to arrange a meeting. Convinced her family to let her move to Hollywood by herself at the tender age of 19 to pursue her dream of being a star. Despite having nearly zero acting experience, guess he signed her on the spot. I mean, it's, it's clear pretty girls really do get all the breaks. Started with a little fashion modeling and a few commercials. Photographs taken over at the time show her she had that mod, waif-thin 60s vibe going on with just a touch of what was called whimsy. And there was a lot of candid photos of her and Mr. Gefsky who looked uncomfortably like a dirty old man frolicking in his fancy backyard pool with the, the ingenue. Tried out to play one of the sexy daughters on the television show Petticoat Junction. But her lack of um, experience got her rejected. But the show's producers were so impressed, they contacted the head of Filmways Pictures, babbling away about this uh, neophyte beauty just walked onto his set. She signed a seven-year contact with Filmways, and must have been one of the last actresses to sign a bona fide studio contract before that system went the way of the dodo. Got the full studio treatment, though. She got acting lessons. Her rent was paid at a place called the Studio Club, run by the YWCA, and Got charm lessons on how to walk, how to dress, and how to do her hair and makeup. According to Gasky, her first female roommate at the studio club put the moves on her. Forced her to switch rooms. Well, even at the YWCA, the women couldn't resist her. Didn't take long for the girl with the Midas touch to ditch her shabby apartment, move into a swanky apartment off the Sunset Strip within walking distance of the Famed nightclub to Whiskey A Go-Go. And without a party there, that Sharon met uh, Jay Sebring, hairstylist to the stars, and Warren Beatty, star of the film Splendor in the Grass. Sebring, who was a notorious philanderer, applied his wares up and down the strip and was that wear breed, a general heterosexual male stylist that his uh, blue-haired, well-heeled clientele had a hard time resisting. I mean, by all accounts, he was impossibly good-looking and could have been an actor himself if he'd showed the slightest interest, which he didn't. 
He and Sharon became seriously involved, and she even eventually moved into a spooky house on Easton Drive in Benedict Canyon. That was the former home of uh, Paul Byrne and his wife, another blonde we've talked about, Jean Harlow. Everybody knew the story that Byrne, despondent over not being able to consummate his marriage to Harlow, blew his brains out in the upstairs bedroom back in the 1930s. You know, Sharon spent long hours alone in that German cottage-style home and claimed to have met the ghost of Byrne himself one night. She'd always carried a fascination with paranormal and also told friends the ghost of Valentino haunted the house uh, she lived next to on Silo Drive called Falcon's Lair. Well, her film career was in limbo. Film ladies had her doing a small recurring role in the Beverly Hillbillies where she had to wear a black wig. Wasn't credited and barely recognizable. Tried to cast her in a small role in the Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Richard Burton film, The Sandpiper, but uh, Elizabeth Taylor was entering her fat years and didn't want to share the screen with uh, somebody as gorgeous as Sharon Tate. Had to travel to England to get a decent part in the witch story, I of the Devil. Yeah, she took this role seriously, even meeting the high priest and priestess of Wicca, Alexander Maxine Sanders. And as fate would have it, Filmways President Martin Ransohoff introduced Sharon to his good friend, producer Roman Polanski, in hopes that Polanski had put her in his new film, The Fearless Vampire Killers. Well, Polanski wasn't, was somewhat reluctant at first, fearing she wasn't experienced enough. and But her charisma was too much for him, though, and she got the part. And following in the tradition of all good actresses, she fell in love with the director, by the time the film was over, the two were inseparable. Photos of the couple striding down fashionable London streets during the 60s show a carefree Sharon, stunning, radiating happiness, and looking the epitome of the mod princess in her giant bell-bottoms and miniskirts. Jay got worried his girlfriend was keeping company with another guy and flew to London to win Sharon back. Ended up meeting and liking Roman, and three of them became best friends. This scenario could only have happened in the 60s, I would imagine. Belanski later said, despite his popularity with the jet set, Sebring was in truth very lonely and thought of him and Sharon as his family. Kept wearing Sharon's college ring on his neck for the rest of his short life. Well, Sharon and Roman set up house together in L.A., and while he got busy directing the film of the defined horror for years to come, Rosemary's Baby... She was cast in the film version of one of the most successful novels of all time, Jacqueline Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. book depicted with scathing realism the deviant, shallow existence of those who chose show business as their way of life. And for its time, it was shocking, though it seemed fairly tame today. I mean, it wasn't going to give a serious run to Shades of Grey, or Fifty Shades of Grey. Not a critically acclaimed novel, Valley was even less acclaimed on film. Sharon played the role of Jennifer North, a struggling Broadway actress who has little talent and is admired only for her beauty. Sounds somewhat um, familiar, I would say. Well, director Mark Robson wasn't a pleasant man. According to Patty Duke, who played Neely O'Hara in the film, he directed most of his unpleasantness toward uh, Sharon, treating her horribly in front of the rest of the cast and crew. And to be fair, she was no great actress. Her delivery was wooden and amateurish. Seemed to be dancing on the surface of her roles rather than digging deep in within herself to become the part. Either she didn't have that capability or she hadn't met the director who could get that performance out of her yet. And if you listen to her in Valley of the Dolls with your eyes closed, her acting is truly cringeworthy. 
New York Times reviewer Bosley Crowther wrote of the film, all a fairly respectable lover of movies can do is laugh at it and turn away. Well, sensing her limitations, or maybe lamenting them, Sharon began referring to her roles and her career trajectory as sexy little me. Meanwhile, Rosemary's Baby was almost causing riots in the theaters, and Oscar talked for its young co-star, Mia Farrow. Sharon couldn't help but resent it, hoped Roman would use her as his star. After all, what's the point of having a director boyfriend who can't get preferential treatment when he's casting his film? But Roman felt uh, their personal relationship would make for a professional conflict of interest and left it to Paramount to bring up her name. They didn't. Well, Roman and Sharon's Beach House became party central in the late 60s. Everybody from movie stars to politicians gathered in their living room to drop acid and eat Sharon's home-cooked Polish dishes. The more successful Roman became, the more his eyes and other things wondered. He weren't married, and Sharon pretended to be too liberated to care about it, but uh, when Roman's uh, tomcatting peaked, she may have had second thoughts. Well, they went to London for the European premiere of Rosemary's Baby in 68, and they got married there. Well, the press reel show her beaming in a very 60s wedding mini-dress, hair caught up in arms blossoms, cutting a huge slice of um, wedding cake with her new husband. Sadly, wedded bliss was not to be. Roman wasn't particularly large on oath-keeping, kept sleeping around, and Sharon kept tolerating it because she didn't know what else to do. Still hopelessly in love with the man in his thick Slavic accent who had to stand on his tiptoes to even kiss her. Top of that, early 1969, she found out she was pregnant. Hoping having a baby had settled Roman down, activating his partnership instincts with his paternal ones in a kind of wonder train activate moment, she searched for a home to rent to head a nursery. Well, the couple had been living in the posh Chateau Marmont Hotel for months after leaving the Santa Monica Beach House they'd rented. Sharon longed for a home of her own with a proper environment to raise her child. Candace Bergen, who was a close friend, suggested he move into the house she and Terry Melcher had just vacated. Sharon toured the house and thought it was perfect. February 15, 1969, she and Roman moved into 10050 Silo Drive in Benedict Canyon, a few miles from Sebring's home on Eastman Drive. Tony Melcher, the son of actress Doris Day, was a well-known record producer, once planned to promote a struggling musician drifter by the name of Charles Manson. He even recorded some of Manson's songs at the behest of Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Wilson befriended Manson, but Manson became unsettlingly violent during an afternoon recording session, and Wilson cut all ties with him. A month after Sharon and Roman moved into Melcher's old house, a strange man walked past the gate and up the driveway, eyeing the pretty brawn in the doorway. Photographer Shaharoka Atami asked him what he wanted, and the man said he was looking for Terry Melcher. Tommy didn't know Terry, but told him this was now the Polanski residence, and the man left. Last photographs of Sharon taken over the few months that followed are heartbreaking. One photo shows her beaming in the backseat of a car, holding up her hands with a baby booty on one finger and her lap covered with baby things in another. Hands crossed under her growing belly, looking wistfully from a down the wistfully from the staircase. One of the very last photos taken of her shows her in profile in the backyard with her belly peeking out of her loose top, hand shielding her face in the sun. Everything in that photo is in bright sunlight except her face, which is in deep shadow. As if she's peering into her future, but there's nothing there. 
Well, Sharon was happy about the baby, but Roman was not. He spent his childhood in a Polish Nazi concentration camp. He didn't believe in bringing children into such an evil world. Sharon waited until she was four months pregnant before she even told him. And, of course, he was furious, and she thought he'd stop his philandering. She was mistaken. Just a, as a wedding room hadn't changed his ways, not had been a pregnant wife. Well, she managed to squeak into a French comedy before she began to show a film called Thirteen Chairs, co-starring Orson Welles. Sharon was thrilled to be working with the legendary director-actor and did a pretty good job on the limited role she was given. After the filming was finished in Italy, she flew to London to be with Roman while he worked on his latest picture. By July, he, she was seven and a half months pregnant and returned to Los Angeles to prepare for the birth while Roman stayed behind to tie up loose ends with his film. She left a copy of the classic novel Tested at Iberville's on his nightstand, suggesting men want to consider that story for his next project. Roman later remarked he had a feeling he'd never see her alive again. Maybe he should have asked her to stay. August in Los Angeles is brutal. It's hot and sticky and just plain miserable, especially if you're eight months pregnant. In August of 1969, so a particularly vigorous heat wave hit the city with a temperatures into the high 90s and even a triple digits in outer suburbs. Morning of August 8th, Sharon woke up about 9.30 in the morning and spent the morning on the phone with her husband and her mother. Her mother asked if her younger sister Deborah could uh, come over for a swim and a sleepover. Sharon declined, saying she was just too hot, tired, and miserable and be lousy company. She did entertain two actress friends for lunch around the pool and then had a nap. And she wasn't alone in the house by any means. Roman's two friends, uh, Frakowski and Abigail Folger of Folger's Coffee family, was staying in there at Roman's request until he could return from London for the birth. Late afternoon, um, as the cool sea breeze came across the valley and up into the hills, Jay Sebring left his home and drove up to Sharon's to take everybody to El Coyote, Sharon's favorite Mexican restaurant for dinner. And everyone did have a good time at El Coyote, spending about three hours there before coming back home about 10.30 in the evening. Abigail retired with a book. Frakowski fell asleep on the sofa, and Jay and Sharon spent a few hours talking in her bedroom. Well, many people wondered what they talked about for three hours. Did Sharon confess her disappointment with the marriage and how she wished her husband loved her as much as she loved him and how she wished he wanted her baby as much as she did? Jace sympathized with her. He called her the love of his life, whose high school ring is still wearing around his neck. Did he confess his undying love? How he wished things had turned out differently? Well, unfortunately, we'll never know. Next morning, echoes of horrified screams bounced through the hills, coming from one lone housekeeper, Winifred Chapman, who entered the house on Silo Drive to discover a bloodbath of epic proportions. Five bodies, brutally stabbed, beaten, and shot, were scattered throughout the property, Folger and Frakowski on the lawn outside. Frakowski had been through hell, had been stabbed more than 60 times, pistol-whipped repeatedly, and shot twice. Handle the gun, used to beat him, had broken in the process. Inside, Sharon was covered in her own blood, wearing only a bra and panties, a rope around her neck. She was only 26. Other end of that rope was tied around Jay Sebring's um, neck. He was just a few feet away, shot in the head twice. The words death to pigs and helter-skelter were scalded on the front door and the walls in Sharon's blood. The sight was so gruesome that even seasoned police were throwing up on the front lawn. And to this day, this scene plays over and over in people's minds, remaining uh, 
the most notorious multiple murder in Los Angeles history. Now in death, Sharon got what she desperately strived for in life, uh, lasting fame. Next day, two more people are found dead in their homes, Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. A true uh, band of true counterculture hippies led by Charles Manson and known to local law enforcement as the family were rounded up and jailed on unrelated charges a few months later. One of Susan Atkins bragged to her cellmate about how she and four others killed those people up in the canyon and how when Sharon Tate was begging for her life and out of her baby, she had coldly told her, Look, bitch, you might as well face it. You're going to die and I don't feel a thing. And she began stabbing her. Said Sharon kept repeating mother until she stopped talking. That was a nice, young, well-raised, middle-class psychopath, I guess you could say. Roman, of course, was horrified and grief-stricken when he learned of the murders. Returned immediately to a media frenzy. All of L.A. and the world were stunned that such a brutal crime could happen to such a sweet and lovely girl on the cusp of becoming a, what they said would be a bit of honest happiness. Many have said the carefree innocence of the 60s died with the Tate LaBianca murders and the world would never quite be so idealistic again. Sharon was buried in, at the Grotto in the Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City. Wildly believed that her unborn son was placed in her arms and buried with her. Headstone carries his name, though. Richard, uh, Paul Richard Polanski. Well, Roman Polanski went on to make more amazing movies, including the classic Chinatown. Didn't waste much time replacing Sharon. He was linked with a number of leggy starlets throughout the 70s till he got himself indicted on child molestation charges and had to flee the country. He had one last gift to give Sharon, though. Took her advice and made the film version of Tessa of the Herbivilles and betted its unknown teenage star, 17-year-old Natasha Kinski. Sharon would have been proud. Well, maybe not. She's safe now from her disloyal husband, from critics and Soulless madmen and the drooling freaks that follow them. Well, from Sharon Tate, let's talk about another young lady who didn't find true happiness, and that's Jean Harlow. Well, the scene opens with the girl on the screen barely containing her enthusiasm being slapped by the well-dressed man. She claimed, do it again, I like it, do it, and threw herself on him, kissed him. It wasn't very ladylike, but she didn't care and knew that nobody else cared either. She was something more than a lady, she was a bombshell. The term invented to describe her when all existing terms prove adequate. This was the one, the only, Jean Harlow. 1991, a beautiful baby girl was born in Kansas City, Missouri. Her name was Jean. Her mother, Jean, named her Harleen Harlow Carpenter. Jean was from a wealthy family had never been happy in this arranged marriage to Harleen's father, Montclair Carpenter. Considered, uh, she considered him beneath her class. And those who knew Jean uh, said uh, she was one of the most beautiful women they ever saw, even prettier than her daughter one day would become. Mama Jean doted on her little girl and for the rest of her life would refer to Harleen as the baby. And Harleen, to be truthful, was a beautiful baby, grown to an even more beautiful child with shocking white hair, helped along by a few chemicals courtesy of Mama Jean and huge green eyes. 
lived in splendor in a huge house complete with nannies and chauffeurs and maids. While Mama Jean doted on her, Harlan's affection for her mother bordered on worship as demonstrated in a handwritten thank you note Harlan penned to her mother after receiving a bracelet from her for her eighth birthday. Dearest mother, your gift was the sweetest of all. The little bracelet you gave me used to bind her love still tighter than it is, if that's possible. I love you better than anything that's ever its name was heard of. Please know I love you better than ten lives. You're, you're forever and eternity, your baby. Well, you have to ask yourself if an eight-year-old actually did write that. And in fact, why is an eight-year-old writing a thank-you note to their mother anyway? That note sounds strangely like a love letter. Well, when Harlene was 11, Jean divorced her bourgeois husband, took Harlene, and tried to make a go of it alone in Hollywood. For two years, she pounded the pavement, but at 34, she was beyond her sell-by date, and Harlewood didn't bite. So, giving up in defeat, they returned to Kansas City. Well, Harlene's grandfather felt a level of attachment between his daughter and her daughter was unhealthy and tried unsuccessfully to separate the two. Sent Harlene to a summer camp that lasted the entire summer, to which she had later referred to as the worst nightmare of her life. Lost her virginity there, and came down with scarlet fever. Well, as you might guess, Mama Jean came to the rescue. Little quarantine wouldn't keep her from her baby. She bowled through the protest of the camp director, got into a boat, and rowed herself across the lake to the camp, and well, she found Harlene in an isolation building far from everyone else. Spent the next three weeks there attending Harlene and wouldn't leave her side. Later it came to light the, the illness triggered a dormant virus that would in 11 years lead to kidney disease. On the way back to camp, from camp, they stopped in Chicago to dine at a posh restaurant. A suave man sporting an Italian accent and gigolo-like manner induced himself as Marino Bello. Must have been love at first sight for Mama Jean, because the penniest bellow became her new boy toy. Arlene was less impressed, but tolerated him for the way he made her mother smile. Arlene herself was soon smiling when she met Chuck McGrew, born from high social standing and a sizable inheritance in his future. Dropped out of her oppressive private high school and got married. Mama Jean had already married Bello eight months prior to Arlene's wedding without her daughter's presence, which was a bit of a slap in the face, so to speak. Arlene now had money to play with as her husband came into the first installment of his vast fortune just a few months after the wedding. And Chuck, for his part, did love Arlene, but had no use for her meddling, clingy mother and her Italian gigolo, gigolo husband. So in 1928, he moved his new bride clear across the country to a lavish mansion in Beverly Hills. They lived like Zelda and Scott in true jazz age decadence. Chuck loved booze as much or more than he loved his wife, and the ever-accommodating Harleen tried to keep him company in this regard. Well, the results wasn't pretty. They, they, um, they were seen drunk and carousing in all the fashionable nightclubs of the day, and their parties were legendary. Chuck thought a little thing like 1,600 miles would stop Mama from being with her baby, he was mistaken. Within months, Mama and her jiggle were standing on Harleen and Chuck's doorstep, suitcases in hand. Well, when Mama learned that Harlene was noticed at Fox Studios while waiting for her actress friend and had turned down extra work in the movie, she nearly had a heart attack. And on top of it off, Harlene hadn't used her real name at Central Casting but that of her mother. 
Well, there was no stopping Mama Jean after that, and Jean Harlow was born, or maybe remade, however you want to look at it. Mom immediately took the reins and ordered Harleen to accept the next studio offer that came her way. Soon she was appearing as an extra in, in bit parts all over the place and getting noticed by those with influence in the business. Carleen Moore recalls the first time she saw Jean on set. This beautiful girl with white hair and a white dress was just sitting there nonchalantly. People were pa passing by to look at her and asking who she was. And With attention like that, it wasn't long before somebody a little clout, um, Hal Roach, offered her a five-year contract at a hundred bucks a week. Mother was thrilled, husband Chuck less so, and became a classic tug-of-war. Well, I bet you can't guess who won. Well, in San Francisco, Harleen, now going by Jean, and Chuck had a violent argument over her career and her mother. He got drunk, trashed her hotel room, and she threatened a divorce. A threat she made good on, and not before she got pregnant, no, and got an abortion to save her career. You have to wonder whose idea that was. Well, with Chuck out of the way, Mama's free to pilot Jean's career as she pleased with her unemployed mooch of a husband tagging along and doing as he was told. Jean broke her contract at Hal Roach and worked as an extra again. Being the sole breadwinner for her little family, as she later put it, I turned to motion pictures because I had to work or starve. Quite a come down for a high society young lady. Howard Hughes, wealthy playboy, turned movie directors making the big-budget war epic Hell's Angels and cast Harlow as the female lead. And that film made her a household name. Hell's Angels had already been completed as a silent film, but Hughes knew the era of silence was over, so in 29 he completely remade the picture with sound and a new leading lady. And he immediately recognized the gem he had and had her sign an exclusive five-year contract at 100 bucks a week. Which may not sound like much, but that was considered a nice sum of money in those days. Well, the movie was full of stunning cinematography and cutting-edge special effects. Hughes poured every last dime he had into it, and it showed. When the film premiered at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood on May 27, 1929, the town went nuts. 50,000 people lined the streets to get a glimpse of the stars in their limousines, especially that young, unknown Gene Harlow who managed to shock a bootleg gin-soaked, depression-fearful audience with her barely-there-satin dresses and come-hither banter. And a squad of real fighter planes screamed overhead, and 185 arc lights lit up the boulevard. Well, the National Guard had to be called in to keep the peace. And there she was, materialized amidst all this chaos, draped in white fox and diamonds, Kissing the microphone as she thanked Howard Hughes for her stunning success, looking every inch the star she was. Hughes wasted no time in loaning his new ingenue out to every studio that asked. And like all smart producers of the day, he's paid thousands for her services and paid her just a fraction of that, even though she did all the work. She suffered tremendously during the filming of Hell's Angels, largely due to her inexperience. Her acting was considered subpar and Salvage's investment in her filmed, Hughes uh, filmed a scene in a new colorized technique called Technicolor, which accentuated her eyes, milky skin, and white hair. Well, the effect made Jean a sensation, but caused her to suffer from burned eyeballs from the harsh light she was forced to stand under for hours. I mean, frankly, acting wasn't that much fun anymore. She was loaned out to one mediocre film after another, and her acting didn't improve, often mocked by film critics for stilted delivery, but they had to acknowledge, although she didn't, couldn't act her way out of a paper bag, she was so stunning nobody really cared. 
But the fellow will become her second husband while the rushes for Hell's Angels are still being previewed. MGM executive Paul Byrne. He was on the rebound from the untimely drug-related death of his first love, uh, Barbara Lamar. He became Jean's friend and confidant, much to the alarm and disapproval of Mama Jean. She thought Paul was a weasel who just wanted to use baby Jean for his own conniving, self-centered purposes. Something like the pot calling the kettle black, I guess you could say. Well, Mama still had her hands full, fending off Jean's soon-to-be ex-husband Chuck McGrew, who continued to petition for reconciliation with baby Jean, who was still Harleen, as far as he was concerned. Really wanted to go back to the hubby and domestic life, but Mama would have nothing of it. Eventually managed to separate the two for good. Nasty breakup scene occurred with the very drunk McGrew calling Jean something vile and slapping her so hard her head snapped back. He left the house, never saw his wife again. Jean remarked her aunt, nothing on earth is worth <coughs> what I go through when I don't let her dominate. Well, with burned in her corner, Jean was given the part of a true slut in the MGM gangster film, The Beast of the City. She wiggled and she shimmied and used enough double entendres to uh, work her way into the reluctant heart of a stiff-lipped police detective, much to the delight of the audience. Jean's had her free-spirited best in this film, touching herself seductively while dancing, messing up her hair, throwing herself at her on her shock suitor, all the while attempting to extort money for sex. Doesn't get more pre-haze, office risque, than that. Boone Burn booked her on an East Coast promotional tour for the film, and every theater where she appeared sold out. MGM saw the light and bought out her contract from Hughes. And she was soon paired with Clark Gable. They became the new It couple, at least on screen. They worked in more than five films together. And they became fast friends off screen as well. Rumors swirled of romance. Gable had that boy-man vibe with eyes like a child and a body that flung women over the edge. Maybe that's why people are truly shocked when she up and married the balding, ordinary, middle-aged Byrne in July of 32 instead of the niftier Clark Gable. Yeah, that wedding... Night must have been fascinating as Mr. Byrne was allegedly hiding a little secret about himself. A, uh, I guess you could say, an itty bitty little secret. As Latrice Joy Gilbert, ex wife of John Gilbert, explained after she had seen Byrne naked by accident in the house he shared with her husband, his penis is no bigger than my pinky. Byrne was rumored to have had a physical deformity resulting in permanent, hopeless impotence. But like a horny priest who lusts after the ladies in the confessional chamber, he was strangely obsessed with sex, concealing his lascivious, unfulfilled desire beneath a suave, controlled demeanor. I mean, just think about it. This man who was sex-obsessed but unable to do anything about it found himself married to the very embodiment of sex and still couldn't do anything about it. And because of this defect, Byrne became a bitter little man who belittled his sex goddess wife, putting her down in public as uneducated and stupid, even striking her occasionally. That made what happened that uh, fall seem like uh, not such a bad thing after all. Evening of September 4th, two months into the marriage, which had not been and never would be consummated, Byrne killed himself in the upstairs bedroom he shared with Harlow in their new Bavarian-style house in Benedict Canyon. He and Jean had argued, supposedly, about Mama Jean and Bella, who were pressing Jean to deed them her mansion and invest with them in a Mexican gold mine. I mean, could these two be any more cliched? Jean stormed off home to Mother, leaving him to his own dark thoughts, and 
According to the story, he stripped naked, doused himself in her most expensive perfume, and shot himself in front of a full-length mirror. I guess that was just to remind himself why. Husband and wife domestics, Winford and John Carmichael, arrived in Eastman Drive late the next morning, discovered Burns' corpse. You'd think they'd immediately call the police, but no. Didn't call an ambulance either. Winford called Mama Jean, who in turn informed Louis B. Mayer, head of MGM. Did Mayer call the police? Nope. Call studio chief Irving Thalberg, who told his wife Norma Sheridan, call producer David O. Selznick. Mayor Selznick, Thalberg, and Sheridan headed out to the burn house. Anybody bothered to call the police at this point? Nope. The two official MGM photographers got orders to get over to the scene, as did the MGM head of publicity, Howard Strickling. MGM party at Burns' house. Last one on the, to the suicide is a rotten egg. Well, Strickling and the photographers arrived first, had a blast contaminating the evidence and jumping to conclusions. Strickling waffled through Paul's address book, finding a hastily written suicide note on page 13. He said, Dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the fight for wrong I've done you and to wipe out my abject humiliation. And he said, uh, You understand, last night was just a comedy. Yeah, nobody really knew what the last part could mean. People would speculate about this for decades. If Mayor had his way, nobody but he and Strickland would ever see the note. He intended to destroy it before the police got there. Strickland talked him out of it as his very existence cleared Gene of any wrongdoing. But it does make you wonder what else might have been destroyed. Three musketeers, Sheriff Thalberg and Selznick, arrived. Reporters gathered outside, and word of a cover-up began to spread. Anybody call the cops up to this point? Nope. That wouldn't happen for another hour. And by that point, Burns was getting pretty whiffy, but the studio hotshots needed time to come up with a believable story that would protect their investment and their company from scandal. Well, when the story did break, the headlines exploded with the words, Paul Burns killed self in Gene Harlow's bedroom. Burn impotent. Gene refused to confirm the impotent stories, even though they were true. She wouldn't be a part of dragging poor dead Paul's reputation through the mud. But then another fact came to light. The body of a woman was found floating in the Sacramento River five days after Burns' death. Her name, her name was a Dorothy Millett, and she'd been Burns' secret common-law wife for ten years. That was another secret Mr. Byrne failed to tell Jean when he married her. Millett was mentally unstable and been stalking Byrne and Harlow uh, and harassing him over his marriage to Jean. He, on the other hand, had been supporting her financially and trying to keep her under wraps. Yeah, that all went to hell the night of Byrne's death when Dorothy showed up on Eastman Drive and was still there when Jean got home. And that brings us around to the second version of what happened that night. And it's probably what really did happen. Dorothy wailed outside the house at Paul, who tried to calm her down and get her to leave, and then Jean came home. Awkward exchange among all three parties ensued, ended when Jean told Byrne to call her when he figured out to whom he was actually married and stormed out. Dorothy left shortly after Jean, and all this upset Byrne to the point uh, that he killed himself early the next morning after spending an interesting night prancing around naked and putting on perfume. That's what he meant by, you understand, last night was just a comedy. Millet didn't see the point of hanging around without her sugar daddy, so she bought a one-way ticket on a paddle boat and jumped off into the Sacramento River. Uh, 
The old mayor thought he was going to avoid a scandal, but that didn't happen. The Hardboro streetwise little tramp became the wrong party in a toddy road triangle she had no knowledge about. Gene came out smelling like roses in springtime after a present afternoon shower. Mayor himself couldn't have manipulated the public's reaction any better. And what better way to capitalize on the whole thing than to have Gene star in a movie that eerily resembled her real-life tragedy? The movie Reckless, which is the one they were referring to, uh, was a huge hit, and the studio knew how to turn something ugly into a profit. Well, Jean tried to put the whole thing behind her by throwing herself into work. Entered her golden period of movies such as Red Dust and Hold Your Man, China Sea, and Wife vs. Secretary. Mayor forced her into a sham marriage with cinematographer Herod Rawson, just as she was about to be dragged into an alienation of affection suit by the wife of a man with whom she had a brief affair. The marriage was annulled after seven months, but by that point she had met William Powell, with whom she fell passionately in love and remained so until her death. Well, Gina completed three important films between 1932 and 34, Red Dust, Bombshell, and Dinner at Eight. Red Dust, she played another hooker who falls for Clark Gable, himself a rough-and-tumble entrepreneur trying to make a go of a rubber plantation in Indochina. And Gene really shines as a trash-talking hussy who continually tries to shock the prim and proper Mary Astor with her potty mouth while trying to win over Gable. In one scene, as a tropical storm is raging, she stands in a window, the wind blowing back her shock of white hair, her bow mouth pursed like a pouting child's, watching Gable carry her foe to an isolated cabin. Bombshell may as well have been in a biography. It was so close to a real-life situation. Her main character is a movie star that worked, being worked to death while her moochie family lived in her mansion and spends all their money. Well, that certainly described her family. And, of course, dinner date surrounded it with the finest actors of the day, Marie Dressler, John Barrymore, Lionel Barrymore, Billy Burke, and Wallace Berry, and a comedy of errors revolving around a high-society dinner party. Well, by the mid-30s, Gene Harlow was the biggest star on the, in Hollywood. The Depression raged, theaters went bankrupt and shut down, studios hemorrhaged money, but MGM was profitable, due almost entirely to Gene Harlow. Audience couldn't get enough of her. Her face blazed, uh, graced the cover of countless magazines all over the world, and women went crazy trying to dye their hair that same distinctive platinum blonde. <laughs> the Legion of Decency, a Catholic organization intending to spoil all the pre-censorship Hollywood fund, forced studios to rethink their loose moral values in certain films, mostly the ones with Gene Harlow. Suddenly, the sexually charged blonde slut was out, and the good girl with discerning learnings was in. Jean had to make the switch, which, unbelievably, she was able to do with relative ease. In the film Girl from Missouri, she appears with uh, her as a flirtatious tease who holds out until marriage. Even made a smattering of films with her new brown tresses. Supposed to be an improvement. Later it would come out that her hair had actually fallen out during filming due to overprocessing, and the only alternative was a nice brown rinse. That's what happened when Jean makes peroxide with ammonia, girls. 1937, she began working on her final film, Saratoga. She was at the pinnacle of her career. Never been more popular with fans or critics. And she was with the man she loved. Gene and William Powell were burning up the sheets and tearing up the nightclubs together. He gave her an impressive 98-carat star sapphire ring and blew of an actual engagement ring in the hope she would stop asking him to marry her. She kept pestering him, though. 
Well, a few months before filming on Saratoga began, Jean and her mother attended a plethora of events in Washington, including lunch with Eleanor Roosevelt, as well as 22 other functions. Well, everybody noticed a change in uh, Jean's appearance, though, where she'd always been a perfect figure, was now a bloated one with a puffy face. Uh, her relationship with Powell consumed her, and she remarked to her friend, I can't stand it anymore, he's driving me crazy. Binge drinking surface, pent up rage is how her life had turned out. The rage was on the on Mama Jean, who often served as her verbal punching bag. Jean would have no memory of what she'd done or said after she woke up. Her physical deterioration was mostly blamed on alcohol. Well, as filming on Saratoga started, people could help her notice how ill she looked. She brushed off their concerns, saying she never really got over the Washington trip and her bout with the flu. Well, Saturday, May 29th, was her last day on the set, and she was so ill, dripping with sweat, and doubled over in pain. They tried to take her to the hospital, and she wouldn't go. Fevered and bloated and infected, but she was still grinding away, trying to do everything that was expected of her. Monday morning, Mama Jean suffered uh, some of the doctor to come to her Beverly Hills home. On Tuesday, Jean did something she'd never done and called in sick to work, spending the day, the rest of the day fretting about it. On Thursday, her pain intensified. She became delusional. Well, by Saturday, she had stopped urinating, was excreting her body toxins through her pores, reeked of ammonia, was in excruciating, unrelenting pain. Clark Gable was horrified, ashamed of his own inability to suppress the revulsion in when he saw her. Her body was doubled in size from fluid retention. And Powell didn't show even his face till Sunday, probably because he's busy going out with another actress, Bernadine Hayes. Jean was happy to see him, but complained he looked blurry before she lapsed into a trance. Ambulance was called, and she was admitted to the hospital. By Monday, her brain was swollen and pressing against her skull, and Powell dropped by on the way to work. He emerged from her room, a changed and devastated man. His eyes were swollen shut from crying. His her Aunt Jetty urged her to get better, to which she replied, I don't want to. Well, two and a half hours later, at 11.38 in the morning, June 7, 1937, Jean Harlow was dead. She was 26. Well, even the best eventually succumbed to the great leveler. On that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow, and once again, we'll be talking about strangely unusual. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show, saying have a truly great evening.